Hi, Stephanie Gleason here. Before we jump into this podcast, I wanted to take a moment to note that it was recorded before the sudden and recent collapse of crypto exchange FTX. The discussion that follows is an analysis of what we've learned so far from cryptocurrency firms that have gone through Chapter 11 with Pablo Bonjour, who was the financial advisor on the first such case, Cred Inc. Following the events of the last few days, we think it's more relevant than ever. I hope you enjoy. This is Stephanie Gleason, senior reporter for The Deal, and you're listening to Fresh Start. Today, we're going to be talking about crypto firms in Chapter 11. Earlier this year, I spoke with Adam Levitin of Georgetown Law about what might happen to customers if a crypto exchange filed for Chapter 11. Since then, there have been two huge Chapter 11 filings from crypto firms that have left customers in the crosshairs. If you didn't listen to our last crypto episode, I invite you to start there because today we're jumping right in. Pablo Bonjour of Mako Restructuring is here to talk about crypto Chapter 11 cases. Before Voyager and Celsius filed this year, there was the bankruptcy of Cred Inc., a crypto company that when it filed in November 2020, in some ways felt like a one-off in the heat of a pandemic. Now, Voyager and Celsius have fact patterns so similar that Cred looks more like a template. Pablo and his firm Maco served as financial advisors to Cred, a deal that was recently named Restructuring of the Year in the Upper Middle Market category by M&A Advisors. He's here to walk us through what happened in that case and talk about what it means for the cases in Chapter 11 now and those that will file in the future. Pablo, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, Stephanie. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Before I jump into our first question today, could you tell me a little bit more about yourself? Sure, absolutely. I'm a managing director with Maco Restructuring Group. I'm located here in Houston, Texas. Maco is a middle market traditional restructuring and turnaround firm. We actually have about seven offices nationwide from Las Vegas all the way to New York and in between. And we specialize in various industries. We're essentially industry agnostic. We do, of course, a lot of oil and gas, cryptocurrency, et cetera. And we typically serve interim financial roles or executive roles, such as CFO, COO, CRO, which is Chief Restructuring Officer. About 60% of our business is providing financial advisory through Chapter 11s. The rest of it, about 30% are traditional turnarounds and 10% where we are involved with actual wind downs. And that's essentially what we do here. So Pablo, tell me a little bit about Cred Inc. What were the circumstances surrounding its Chapter 11 filing? And what was Cred Inc.? Sure. Well, Cred Incorporated is considered to date the first major Chapter 11 cryptocurrency in the United States. We had the opportunity to represent Credit Incorporated, which is the debtor. And Credit Incorporated was a California-based, Silicon Valley-based cryptocurrency exchange, which operated a earn and borrow model similar to what you see with other large cryptocurrency outfits today, such as Voyager, Celsius, etc. And they operated that business model successfully for a few years until they ran into some issues. And why did it file for bankruptcy? What kind of prompted its collapse? Right. Well, the crux of the issue with cred is actually the same business model issue that other cryptocurrency exchanges and companies are encountering today, as we've seen more recently with more Chapter 11s. And what I'll do very quickly is just kind of walk you through the business model and where the issues are and why you're seeing a lot of these popping up as Chapter 11s. And until they change this model, you'll probably continue to see more Chapter 11s. The way it works is most of these companies have what's referred to as an EARN program. That's E-A-R-N, EARN. And what they do is they offer their customers an interest rate or a certain rate of return if they transfer their cryptocurrency to them. So for example, Stephanie, if you had you know, 10 Bitcoin, and let's say I'm, I'm Credit Incorporated, then I would ask you to transfer that Bitcoin to me in exchange. I would hold your Bitcoin. So you're technically the owner of it. And in exchange, I'll pay you 7 or 8% as an annual, let's say annualized dividend, uh, let's say on a monthly basis. And you have to hold that for six months. 
And at the end of those six months, theoretically, you can then take your Bitcoin, do whatever you want to with it. You can continue to hold it, or you can continue to restake it for another six months or three months or a year, and I'll continue to pay you an interest rate. That's essentially the basic business model that most of these companies operate. It's called, called the EARN program. The issue comes in where, in that when you transfer that cryptocurrency to a company like Cred or Voyager or Celsius, what most customers don't understand is that when they do that, you're actually giving the company the ability or the permission to be able to take that cryptocurrency and do essentially whatever they want to with it. And you're also, and as they're finding out through the chapter 11 process, you're also essentially giving away the ownership. You know, there's an old saying in the cryptocurrency world, it's, it's not your keys, it's not your crypto. Well, essentially, when you're transferring to an exchange, you're essentially giving away your keys. Now, there are ways to prevent that. We can kind of get into that later, but I kind of want to walk through the rest of the model. So there's another issue beyond the ownership. Once they take your Bitcoin, what ends up happening is in order to pay you your 7 or 8% rate of return, they have to go out and find another vehicle or another investment or let's say a third-party money manager that's going to pay them more than what they're paying you. So what they'll end up doing is transferring that to high-yield third-party money managers or other decentralized finance cryptocurrency vehicles that can return 15 20%, 25%. I've seen them as high as 30 35%. The problem with that is that in order to generate that type of yield, these third-party money managers are taking a lot of risk. Inevitably, if one of them essentially blows themselves up with these risky investments, which they at some point typically do, especially when you have a pullback in the markets, then they're not only going to be unable to pay the interest rate back to the company, but they're going to be unable to return the principal. And what ends up happening is it leaves the companies like Cred in a bad position because now they don't have the 10 Bitcoin that was yours that they're supposed to return to you. Essentially, they have to go out into the market and repurchase that. On top of that, they're still bound to pay you the 7 or 8% that they promised you, and they're not getting any more yield. So it creates a liquidity problem and a liquidity issue. So basically, what you've described is the situation for all of these debtors. They all, like you said, have the same business model. Another thing I noticed is that just how interconnected the world of crypto is that they're all sort of lending to each other. I mean, is that another factor in the business model that makes it a little bit risky? Absolutely. And and that's exactly right. And and what happens is in addition to that, because it is somewhat of a small world, uh, a lot of these third-party money managers, you know, they're not necessarily audited. So when the companies like Cred or Voyager or Celsius are out there seeking these third-party money managers, they're not necessarily doing a ton of due diligence. They're picking companies that have been around since 2018, which really is not that long ago. But since the space is brand new, it's only been around for a little over 10 years. And exchanges have really only started to pick up steam here in the last few years. There really isn't a whole lot of choices out there. So when you do have one of them too poorly, that definitely will domino and affect the rest of the industry. And as we saw in CRED, they also had another issue with some of these halves. Well, what they attempted to do is to hedge their cryptocurrency risk. So if you recall the scenario, the example that I gave you on the 10 Bitcoin, well, a lot of these third-party money managers will not accept in-kind crypto. So for example, in Cred, one of their largest third-party money managers was a company by the name of Mo Credit. And Mo Credit was a Chinese lending platform and they lent to Chinese gamers primarily. These are what are referred to as micro loans. So $5 loans, $20 loans, $50 loans. And the way that that worked is if you're a Chinese gamer, let's say you want to upgrade, you know, you're playing a video game, you want to upgrade your armor and it costs $5. So you push a button, they lend you the $5. And at the end of the month, you pay them back $5 plus a dollar of interest, which is, you know, a 20% rate of return in a month. That's why a lot of these third-party money managers are able to provide 30% or 25%. In the case of Mo Credit, they're at one point paying 35%. 
On the other side of that equation, you had cred paying their customers about 10%, a little bit less than that. And they were making this nice 20 or 25% spread. The other issue, of course, is as when you sell that Bitcoin to give to MoCredit, because MoCredit only accepted stablecoin, they are now technically short the cryptocurrency that they sold in order to make that transaction happen. So the Bitcoin that they took in or Ethereum or whatever crypto, they ended up selling, converting that to stablecoin, sending that to MoCredit, which means that if the price of Ethereum or Bitcoin begins to go up, and now that you're technically short that specific crypto, you're going to have to go out at some point as the company and buy that back, more than likely at a higher price. In order to hedge that risk, since they're effectively short, is they put on a hedging program. This hedging program would essentially purchase or go long Bitcoin futures contracts and other hedges. And when you have significant price volatility, as we saw in March of 2020, about six months before Cred went out of business, they were stopped out of all of their futures contracts. So the hedges that they had to protect them were essentially lost. The monies that they invested in those hedges were effectively lost as well. So not only did they no longer have the cryptocurrency that was compounded by the fact that they didn't have any more hedges, so they're short effectively their entire position. And as the price of Bitcoin began to go up, back up after March of 2020 and go on to new highs, they were effectively losing hundreds of thousands of dollars every time Bitcoin went up in price because they're effectively short almost their entire crypto portfolio. So all it took was some turbulence in the market for this business model to become very problematic. Exactly right. Any type of extreme volatility is problematic for this business model. And they also depend on what type of strategy they're operating as far as hedging. But in the case of cred, they were, I guess, kind of hoping that the prices would not go up that much. And simultaneously, they went out and attempted to try to find as much liquidity as they could. They reached out to my credit. They reached out to these third-party money managers to say, hey, look, we need some of our money back. Can you give that back to us? And what they got back from the other money managers is they kind of saying the same thing. And that is, hey, look, we're, we're kind of locked into longer term positions right now. We can't get out of these positions without taking a large loss. And so they were unable to provide the liquidity that cred needed. So what happened then in the chapter 11? What was the outcome of the case once it was in bankruptcy? Oh, in our particular case, we had a little bit of luck that worked in our favor. I previously used to own a commodities firm many, many years ago. And I'm a former investment banker, I used to work at Lehman Brothers and Oppenheimer. So I had some experience in, in trading currencies and commodities. And on day one, you know, I made the decision that we were actually going to hold what little cryptocurrency that they had, which is essentially the, the creditor's assets, instead of selling them. We, we were getting some pressure to sell the cryptocurrency just to you know put it into fiat or USD currency. But we could tell from the price action that the cryptocurrency market, specifically Bitcoin, and that was the largest position that Cred had, was starting to break out on the upside. And typically, when you see that type of price movement, you could usually expect at least a 15% price appreciation. So with our figure on the trigger, as we say, we're getting ready to sell it, had it pulled back significantly. We decided to essentially stay long in the portfolio. And over the next four and a half months, as we advised them through the bankruptcy until what's called plan confirmation, which we achieved in March of 2021, we saw in some cases, some of the cryptocurrency appreciate by over 400%. That included Bitcoin and about 50 others that we had that also went up you know, some 100%, 150%, 200%, which is part of the reason why we were able to increase the assets during the bankruptcy significantly, which is very rare. Typically, the Chapter 11, you don't see that. Which is part of the reason we were able to win that award that you mentioned previously. And also, since it was the first time that most people or anyone had really seen a Chapter 11 in the United States, we were really instrumental, MACO was, in figuring out a lot of the differences and how to work through a bankruptcy that's a cryptocurrency bankruptcy versus a more traditional one. There are a lot of different mechanisms that we developed and things that we implemented to facilitate the bankruptcy chapter 11. Right. So certainly the environment for cryptocurrency during 2020 and 2021 is a lot different than what we're seeing today. What are some of the lessons that you think that 
these current cases might be able to draw from what you were able to do in CRED? Sure. Yeah, the first one, what we've been talking about for a long time is if you're a cryptocurrency holder, whether you're an individual or you're a business and you're wanting to, let's say, diversify your portfolio and invest in cryptocurrency, you've got to remember that cryptocurrency is a very volatile instrument. It's both a commodity, it's a currency, it comes with a lot of risk. And second to that is the fact that the industry is really just starting out. It's trying to seek its own level. And what we're seeing is we're not seeing a lot of regulation yet. It's going to take a long time for the SEC, the CFTC here in the United States to really implement the right regulation that it really is needed here. And so one of the biggest takeaways is you've got to be really cautious about what you invest in in cryptocurrency and also where. You know, for example, one thing I recommend is if you have a substantial crypto portfolio, you may just want to park it yourself onto the blockchain instead of going through an exchange. What I typically do is, for example, for myself, if I'm purchasing cryptocurrency, it's easier for me to do it through an exchange. But what I end up doing is transferring it to what we refer to as cold storage, which is a hardware device where I can essentially store it onto the blockchain myself. And by doing that, you avoid the creds of the world, you avoid the Voyagers and the Celsius is going under. The only risk you'll have at that point, of course, is just the price volatility of the underlying cryptocurrency. And of course, you don't want to lose you know, your 24-word password. Otherwise, your <laughs> cryptocurrency is lost forever, which you've, I've heard some horror stories about that. But as long as you've got Too. that locked down, you're in a much better position. Don't lose your password is maybe the best lesson <laughs> we could have from all of this. Right. Great, great. So since CRED happened, there wasn't sort of a big domino effect. It it seemed like for a while, we weren't hearing much about crypto and distress in Chapter 11 until the beginning of this year when we started hearing about this crypto winter. And there was something that happened that drove several Chapter 11 filings. Maybe you could explain what happened that took Voyager and Celsius down? Sure. Yeah, great question. So it's a combination of two things. Um, first, you know, you had a pullback in pricing. You know, Bitcoin hit over 60,000, had major resistance there, began to pull back. Over time, the cryptocurrencies in general started to pull back from those highs. So I think a lot of the exuberance that you saw in early 2021 began to subside. You had some profit taking. So that kind of essentially cooled everyone's jets. But what really kicked it off, what really caused the domino effect, if you will, is what occurred with Terra. So I'll just kind of go through and I'm going to explain what Terra is, what happened, and you know what that led to. Yeah, please. What is Great. Terra? Terra is a, essentially it's an open source blockchain protocol. It was created by a guy by the name of Do Kwan back in 2018, about five years ago. And I might add, before I forget that, currently, and you probably know this, South Korea issued an arrest warrant for Do Kwan, and he's currently on the run. Even Interpol is searching for him. They've been trying to find him for a couple months now, and he's kind of hiding. And you'll understand here in a minute why. So what Terra did is they issued two things. One called a cryptocurrency, it's a smart contracts cryptocurrency by the name of Luna. At one point, Luna did really well. It had over a $40 billion market cap. It traded as high as $119 per coin. And Luna is a form of currency, right? Kind of like a Bitcoin. It, it's a cryptocurrency, correct. It's, it's just like Bitcoin, exactly. It has a price, it, it used to you know, trade. And in the beginning, every, I remember when Luna did really well, everybody kind of owned a little bit of Luna. You know, I own some Luna, everybody had some. Simultaneously, Terra also issued what was called Terra USD, or commonly referred to by three letters, UST. And UST essentially was created as a, Stable coin and technically should be pegged to the dollar, the US dollar, and it should maintain its value of $1 at all times. And the way that it was developed, it was developed essentially using an algorithm, mathematical model. And the way it worked is anytime that the price of UST dropped below $1, so let's say it dropped to 99 cents, then an arbitrage mechanism would kick in where you could actually buy UST at say 99 cents on the dollar. And what you would then do at that point, it would seesaw with Luna. 
So Luna and UST were essentially intertwined. So as you bought one, the other one was sold. As you sold one, the other one was purchased. And what this did is it created this seesaw to keep it at $1. It actually worked pretty well for a while. The problem came in when you had about $2 billion worth of what's referred to as staked. And if I didn't say this earlier, when I was talking about the cred example on the 10 Bitcoin for those six months that we would lock it up at that interest rate, that's called staking. So when you stake a cryptocurrency, what you're agreeing to do is you're agreeing to lock it up for a certain amount of time. And in return, you're going to get a certain rate of interest paid on that. Well, with UST, you had about $2 billion that essentially became unstaked. And instead of re-rolling that back into UST, they began to sell it. And as they sold it, it was too much selling pressure on UST. And there was also an error in the design of that mechanism that limited how much Luna could offset UST. So what ended up happening is it came off the $1 price, went, came all the way down to 91 cents off the dollar, which is a significant drop for what's supposed to be a stable coin. Most stable coins usually don't move that much, if at all. And what that in turn did is it scared everybody out of the market. So everybody started selling their UST to convert to Luna. And then when they got into Luna, then they further sold Luna. So it was kind of a double whammy on both of those. And it created essentially a a gigantic sell-off. It created a liquidity issue. And essentially, a lot of investors, especially the big guys, like Three Arrows Hedge Fund, ended up losing a tremendous amount of money. Because they were getting about 19.5% rate of return on UST. They went from getting 19.5% to getting nothing and not even getting back the majority of their principal back. And Luna went to zero ultimately, right? No, I don't know that Luna is at zero today. I haven't checked it recently. I'd have to get back to an exact price. I actually have some Luna in one of my portfolios. But you know, there's still some value out there. The, the issue came in that companies like or hedge funds like Three Arrows Capital, which is a Singapore-based hedge fund, had a good portion of their investment dollars invested into UST. And what they had done is they had actually gone out and actually borrowed, according to Voyager, for example, they had borrowed about $650 million worth of Bitcoin from Voyager. And that created domino effects. So when Terra or UST went under, that caused Three Arrows Capital to go under, which then caused Voyager to go under. And that created that domino effect. And then about a week after that, Celsius Fall for chapter 11. Right. So it's sort of this interconnectedness of these firms. So the Terra problem causes a crisis at Three Arrows Capital and Voyager and Celsius were both connected to Three Arrows Capital. They had both lent money to the hedge fund, right? Right. So just to expand a little bit on that. So yes. it's, it's a couple of things. Voyager has about 100,000 creditors. They were estimated like their asset range, depending on when you looked at their portfolio, was anywhere from a billion to up to 10 billion at one point. And of course, it's, I think it's a little bit on the lower end, but you know, $650 million hole for Voyager, you know, if you're worth a couple of billion or a billion or three billion, whatever the number is, it's so significant, you're, you're probably never going to be able to make that up. And with a company like Celsius, they didn't have as much lent out to Three Arrows Capital. But what happened was when all of this started to happen, you had a sell-off in the market. So you had further pricing pressure on the cryptocurrencies. You had major sell-offs. And you essentially had what, you know, the old days, you'd have the run on the banks where everybody would get scared and run to the bank and want to take the money out. And that's exactly what happened in the market. So a company like Celsius, for example, I know that their outflows in May were over a billion. And anytime that you have you know, these outflows are significantly faster or higher than their inflows. At the same time, they've got pressure to return cryptocurrency that keep in mind because of this earn model, they no longer have. So they're essentially trying to find liquidity, they're trying to find cash to go out there and buy cryptocurrency to give it back to customers. And they can't do that, which is the, the, the issue with cred. And all of that combined together, poor risk management, you know, all of that combined, all happening at the same time, is what caused this gigantic crypto winter and domino effect. Right. And you had mentioned before the executive at Terra is missing. I know I've written a little bit about Three Arrows Capital. Their founders 
there's been a struggle to locate them and have them cooperate with the liquidator in that case. Can you talk a little bit about how much the question of what the actions of the people involved in these companies, how that is affecting the case is also, I mean, is there fraud often or how does that affect things? Right. Well, as you saw, as I mentioned earlier with Do Kwan, obviously there's an arrest warrant out on him. They feel that there's enough evidence there to substantiate an arrest warrant that you know, he wasn't necessarily operating in a way that's legal. With the Credit Incorporated case, one of the capital officers, a guy by the name of James Alexander, had supposedly absconded some Bitcoin before he left. He transferred some Bitcoin to himself. That's kind of an ongoing thing. He claims it's his. I, I know that he returned parts of it. In that particular case, and this is one thing I wanted to bring up, the court ordered a third-party examiner to come into the cred case, which is exactly what they did in the Celsius case, which I'm, right. I'm all for, and we don't oppose that. And I'm glad that they, they're doing that. In the cred case, what they found is that that capital officer was previously convicted of international wire fraud and was serving time in a British prison and actually escaped a yeah, British prison. <laughs> and, it was a jailbreak, right? Yeah. It was a jailbreak and came to the United States. And I'm assuming that they ran a background check that was US-based only, and they didn't run one that was international. So they missed the fact that he was you know, on the run. And, <laughs> and this guy was appointed as the capital officer. Unfortunately, what you see, you know, and what we're starting to see here. You know, you mentioned the Three Arrows uh, founders, and they were they were MIA for a while. Is that you've got some people out there that maybe are just not getting a lot of scrutiny, or they're put in a position where they don't necessarily have a lot of experience in managing these types of businesses, and they're getting themselves into trouble, and they're doing things that are maybe borderline unethical, and in some cases, possibly illegal. I wanted to ask because you mentioned it about the Celsius examiner. As you said, there was an examiner in Cred. And you think that it's a good idea in Celsius. I know that there's been quite a few conflicting opinions about whether it's a good use of resources in the case and so on. But you think it benefited the CRUD case and could benefit the Celsius case? Yes, I think so. In the case of Celsius, they've selected Shoba Pillay, who has experience. She's a, she was a U.S. attorney for the Department of Justice for you know, more than, I think, 10 or 11 years. And so is, is familiar with this type of like cyber and crypto. And I think that's a great choice. And, and her role is to go in there and analyze who owns or make a determination, in her opinion, as to who owns the crypto assets, the ones that are held in custody and the ones that are held in the what they call the withhold accounts. You know, what rights do they have? Can they access their holdings? And that is going to affect I think, in my opinion, how the judge ultimately rules, she's supposed to come out with that report sometime in mid-November. So I'll be curious to see what she comes up with. But I think ultimately, what they'll probably rule is similar to what we had in the Craig case. And that is that with most of these customer agreements, they clearly gave away the ownership and allowed these companies to commingle. And you know, once you do that, it's effectively not your cryptocurrency anymore, it becomes part of the estate. However, there are some clear-cut cases where individuals did transfer in custody, held cryptocurrency that never entered into the earn or the borrow or any other programs. And their expectation was that their cryptocurrency would just sit on the exchange and will never move within the firm. And I think with those that are clear-cut, where they can demonstrate that, I think those individuals may get their cryptocurrency back. And so what was the outcome for customers in the CRED case? In the CRED case, it was determined that all of the customers essentially, and this is through the customer agreement and additional analysis, it was determined in that particular case that all of the customers effectively, by signing those customer agreements with that specific legal language and allowing the company to commingle those assets in both the borrow program and the earn program, they effectively became a property of the bankruptcy estate. And so what did that mean for them that they became property of the bankruptcy estate? Well, then what that means is that ultimately when the liquidating plan that was approved is finally executed and liquidated, and that's up to the, the lawyers that are managing that today, whatever the amount is, 
it will be essentially divided up on a pro rata basis based on you know the percentage that they effectively represent of the overall state. So if you're let's say one uh, percent, your claim, Stephanie, represents one percent of the total value. Then ultimately, when that disbursement is connected, you'll get one percent of the total estate. Versus, let's assume that you could make an argument that you are a custody a customer where your assets remained yours and did not become part of the bankruptcy estate. And maybe that standalone cryptocurrency may effectively represent 10% of the overall assets. Uh, in that particular case, had that been the determination, which is not the case in cred, but is going to be the case, in my opinion, in Celsius with a, a certain amount of money, then those specific custody accounts would remain whole and would receive either the exact same cryptocurrency they got back or as close to in-kind crypto as possible to match that value. So that's interesting. Why do you think that it will be a little bit of a different outcome in Celsius? Because by the time that we got around to Celsius, they already started to change customer client agreements and the legal language changed. So it wasn't just a boilerplate, hey, uh, this is how we're operating. We're going to allow you to commingle. They began to issue customer agreements specifically that made a difference or differentiated between custody accounts and other accounts. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. The Celsius case has a lot of similarities that I can see with CRED. We also have Voyager. And I know that case has a sale, which is not something that, that took place in CRED. Right. Well, with Cred, we the same firm, a, a company by the name of Teneo, which is actually the same company that's trying to recover the assets for Three Arrows, was engaged by the debtor by Cred to attempt to sell the platform, the Cred platform. So the platform in and of itself expanded about 138 to 139 different countries. Uh, so it had some value. So from a technical perspective, it had some value. Ultimately, at that time. The prospective buyers that they contacted ultimately did not necessarily have an interest in the platform in and of itself. And at that point, we switched to a liquidation model, just trying to minimize expenses and maximize the return. So it's a little bit different than what you saw in Voyager. With Celsius, there's some value out there with the mining operation, and that's yet to be determined. The debtor has 120 days from the date of the filing to deliver their proposed plan. They have not done that yet. In the case of Voyager, you actually had a sale process to purchase the assets, which includes the cryptocurrency. And in that particular case, there was a bid made and accepted by a company by the name of FTX US. You may have heard the name Sam Bankman-Fried, who's the founder and CEO of that particular entity. And they made a one, just a little over $1.4 billion bid. And later this month, all the creditors will vote on that to see if that's accepted, which in my opinion, they should accept. I think that's a, a really good offer for them as that would return effectively somewhere around 72 cents on the dollar back to the claimants, which is a, a great rate of return, especially in a bankruptcy. Absolutely. It does seem like a good outcome for them. Can you explain a little bit how that sale is structured? I think FTX is in some ways a similar platform to Voyager and Celsius, correct? Right. Yeah. It's, it's more of an exchange. It's, it's very similar right. to them. They, they really focus more on the exchange side of things, being able to buy and sell. You could buy other products, DeFi products. You can buy and sell NFTs, things like that. And the way that that works is if you transfer, and it, this is, can get a little bit complicated. So I don't know if you want me to dig into this that much, but it's from a 50,000 foot view. It's effectively, if you stay with FTX, if you're a creditor, and you transfer your crypto to FTX, that's an option for them. They also give them some incentives to do that. But most of the value there really is the effectively the cryptocurrency. And what's going to happen is they're going to pick a 20-day period where they're going to take the average price of the cryptocurrency, and that will determine the value or the payout that these creditors will receive. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting way to handle it. I know there had been a lot of question over what the value of the crypto would be once it was at the value the day that it filed for bankruptcy or how would it work, especially with the volatility in the market. I mean, it seems like maybe that's a, a model going forward. 
Yeah, that's certainly a good solution. I think with cryptocurrency, chapter 11s and the like, I really think the solution is really a one-off because every situation is completely different. And depending on what cryptocurrency prices have done or will do during that chapter 11 process, I think that really kind of determines the solution. You may be familiar, you may have heard of the Mt. Gox Japanese exchange that yes. filed. And, and you know, in that particular case, <clears throat> for those that are not familiar, they had a major hack or a breach that essentially caused them to effectively file. And what ended up happening in that case, because Bitcoin back in you know, 2014, when this happened, was significantly lower, the claims or uh, the creditors in that case, had they held on to their claims, saw more than a 20-fold return on their claims because the price of Bitcoin you know, went up significantly. There were professionals out there, people that purchased these claims and essentially made a killing on it. In that particular case, obviously, that's a, a great outcome where you have the value of the bankruptcy that's significantly more than they did when they filed. So with cryptocurrency, you always have to you know, take that into account. With the cred case, we were, like I said, we were lucky in that we caught the upside of that process. So that's, which is a nice problem to have. But at the same time, you have to account for that because if you file your claim, you essentially stay the debt on the filing date. Well, in the Bitcoin, in our case, went 400%. Now you have an added value. Well, do you get back all of that? Do you get a portion of that? And same argument the other way around, like with Celsius and some of these others, if the value goes down, you know, what do you get? Do you get what happened on the day of the filing? Do you get where the price is today? So you've got to come up with a mechanism to make sure it's fair for the creditors. And I think depending on what the unique circumstances are and the timing, I think you've got to custom tailor the solutions for that, which is what they're doing here for Voyager. So I, I think that 20-day rolling average is a good solution. Definitely. I wanted to take a minute to ask you also about the Committee of Unsecured Creditors in all of these cases. And they play a pretty important role because they're representing the customers that are holding these currencies or that thought they were holding these currencies. I've noticed them doing some really unusual sort of innovative things, virtual town halls. I know they, in both cases, the UCCs have their own Twitter accounts. I'm curious how you think their role is different than in some other chapter 11 cases and if there is something to be learned from the way they're handling the unsecured creditors in these cases? Sure. Yeah, no, that's a great question. For our case in cred, for the UCC, they were represented by McDermott. Darren Asman was the lead there. It was great to work with. We actually had an opportunity to work with him, not just even though I was on the debtor side, they asked me and they asked Maco Group to do an analysis for one of their cases. And we can talk about that later. They had a, a rogue creditor that attempted to kind of circumvent the process and assert a senior position. But Darren Asman, which led that, did a fantastic job. We worked closely with him, the creditors and creditors committee, the council, the financial advisors, et cetera, which is part of the reason why we were able to get to the plan confirmation very quickly, which is, you know, like I said, four and a half months. If you look at what happened with Voyager, uh, well, Darren Asman and McDermott were the lead as well as lead counsel for Voyager. And, you know, they've already not only secured a bid, but if everything goes well and this gets approved and voted in, then they have a very high probability of confirming their plan sometime probably the first or second week of December. And remember, they filed first week of July. So that's a pretty quick time frame there to be able to yeah, operate. Absolutely. Yeah. That, so he's done a fantastic job. And I think the experience that he had and going through the first one with us played a, a big part in that. If you look at Celsius, for example, comparatively, Celsius filed really only about a week later after Voyager. If you listen to the town halls for Celsius and you, you hear the council for them, which is White and Case and their financial group M3, they're kind of in a different circumstance. Now, in their defense, they're waiting for the debtors to come up with a plan. The debtors have 120 days. But a lot of the questions that they have that I heard in the town hall that they were not able to answer were really questions that we were able to figure out and answer right away in the cred case. And same questions that were essentially resolved as well through the Voyager case. So I think experience certainly plays a role. The other side of that, of course, is you've got a lot of individual customers out there that are now creditors. And it's not just a handful, over 100,000 
in Voyager, you have 1.7 million in Celsius. That's just one of the biggest number of predators that you can you ever have out there. You have to understand in most chapter 11s, you're lucky if you have three or 400 predators. Sometimes you have a thousand, but really not more than that. Typically, they're professional vendors or they're professional lenders or secured lenders. So you're kind of dealing with a different set of predators. So I think you're seeing a different type of pressure and you're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, anytime you have a lot of individuals that are getting hurt in cryptocurrency or by these companies, you're going to have a lot more light, like a lot more attention. And so hence you see a lot of these attempts to reach out to the public, the Twitter accounts, the town hall, which I think is a great idea. And I commend them for doing that. Right. The stakes are very high for these creditors more so than other cases. So yeah, it's interesting. Tell me about the rogue unsecured creditor. Well, okay. Yeah, that's a great, great question. And, <laughs> and let me just say that that's framing that from the perspective. If you're an unsecured creditor, you've got, you're part of a group of, in our case in CRED, we had 6,500 creditors. One big difference with CRED is that the average claim, depending on when you look at the cryptocurrency prices, was just significantly larger and on a per creditor basis as compared to say someone like Celsius. So like, for example, Celsius has 1.7 million creditors. But I think the average is less than 2,000 per claimant. Whereas in the cred case, it was between 40,000 to 90,000 per, depending on where you're pricing the commodity. So you had bigger, larger individuals, investors that were involved with that. But within the context of the cred case, one of the creditors that was involved in what they refer to as the borrow program made an argument that because they had transferred in Bitcoin to cred to be held as collateral in exchange for a loan back to the customer that was made in US dollars, they made the claim or assertion that they are a higher priority, they're a higher level than the standard unsecured creditors. And had they won that, then they would have had a superior right to make claims onto the estate. And henceforth, the other you know, 20 some odd uh, individuals that are involved in the borrow program as well will, would have really made claim to what were the majority of the assets at that time. And the UCC council and financial advisors reached out to me and I ended up doing a, a 47 page cryptocurrency tracing analysis on this specific customer's Bitcoin. And also, you know, we went through it and analyzed the customer agreement on cross-examination and we kind of went through that whole process a couple of different times. And ultimately, it was determined that we're able to clearly show that there's no way that you could assign that specific Bitcoin to that specific customer because there's just way too much commingling. And so ultimately, Judge Dorsey out of Delaware decided and ruled in our favor, favor of really the, the UCC in general, that that specific customer, customers that were in the borrow program did not have a superior position and therefore would be treated just like all the other unsecured creditors. So interesting. That's cool. Well, I want to take a minute to ask you a couple sort of high-level questions about these cases. And um, we've spent a lot of time on the specifics, the nuts and bolts, but they're surely going to have ramifications for future cases and chapter 11 and crypto broadly. So I'm curious, how have these bankruptcies affected the world of cryptocurrency? Are investors noticing? Are they changing the way they behave? Or is it more so only affecting the customers that are, are part of these bankrupt cases? Well, I think it's a combination of both. I think for one, it's I think people are beginning to realize, if they haven't realized already, that a lot of these companies that are involved in the cryptocurrency space it, there's inherent risk in transferring your cryptocurrency really to any exchange uh, or to any company in the cryptocurrency space. So I think that's actually a good thing as far as that type of information. It's something that we've been talking about here for a long time. I do panels across the country for different organizations or just volunteer for different networking organizations. And I'm always kind of putting the word out that this is how it works and that there is risk there. And I think it's important for individual investors to understand that risk. So I think from that perspective, they're going to be a little bit more cautious, which is a good thing. Another, I think, outcome or things that, are, that I see changing is you're seeing more scrutiny, more regulation now, both domestically and internationally, which again, I think is a good thing as well. It's 
it's needed. And so from that perspective, I think you're going to continue to see improvements in not only the general working environment, but also a lot of these companies that are in the business or, or getting into the business, they're going to be aware of these risks. Because a lot of times, I, I don't think that a lot of heads of these firms are they're not necessarily doing anything. Like let's say with Cred, the CEO is a smart guy. He and his partner that founded that company, they came over from PayPal. They're really tech guys. But unfortunately, you know, they entered into an arena that involves banking, involves lending, involves commodities risk, hedging risk. And when we put all that together, it's a little bit too much, especially if you don't have that kind of background. Right, right. And I'm curious about the flip side, your feelings about how the Chapter 11 process has been able to adapt to handle companies that are dealing in cryptocurrency. Was the foundation there to handle these cases or were there a lot of new innovations that were required? Uh, yeah, well, both. I think ultimately, you know, when you're dealing with bankruptcy, you're, of course, in the federal courts and the federal judges in every district are, these are like the best of the best. So these judges, they've got a lot of experience in that space. You know, they've been involved in all types of bankruptcies. And, and even though cryptocurrency is quote new, a lot of them have been involved with financial related bankruptcies, whether they're banks or lending institutions, things like that. So from that perspective, I think that the bankruptcy, the court process and all these other firms are ramping up. They've got a lot of experience. So they're able to adapt fairly quickly and do a really good job. The flip side to that is, of course, there are a lot of new things that we're seeing that they didn't see before, which includes the ownership of the cryptocurrency of whose cryptocurrency is it, pricing differences, how do you value that specific commodity? How much do you get back? Do you get your same crypto? Do you get in-kind crypto? Do you sell everything? There are a lot of these different things that are affecting the bankruptcy that you have to adjust to. Another thing, of course, is the traditional proof of claims. And the proof of claims normally are mailed out to every creditor. In our particular case, with cred, a lot of the customers, the 65 of the claimants, were really not just the United States, but all over the world, You know, almost 140 different countries. So we, we devised a, kind of an innovative new way to send out these proof of claims. And it was actually done via email. And we also came up with a process to be able to assign them a number. And that way, they could keep their identity confidential. So we were able to do these proof of claims with a number. So if you go online, you'll see the numbers, how much each specific claimant is due to receive, but at the same time, protects their privacy, their identity. So there are a lot of things like that that are still going on. I think the bankruptcy courts are doing a great job adapting to that. Awesome. And what do you think is the number one takeaway for a crypto investor from what we've seen shake out so far in these Chapter 11 cases? The number one takeaway if you're a crypto investor is you have to understand that if you are transferring your cryptocurrency to an exchange or another firm, you have inherent risk. That's the first part. The second part, this is probably bigger than than the first one, is if they're running an aggressive earn program model, and that's how they generate the majority of their earnings, you've got to be very careful because you have to understand that what they're doing is they're effectively taking your cryptocurrency, they're selling it, and then they're transferring it to other third-party money managers or other mechanisms like Terra, like UST, and they're doing these other things that are really risky. And if one of them blows up or fails, it's going to kind of affect all the other investors. And another thing that you're seeing, of course, especially in Celsius, is you've got so many different types of customers in there. And what happens is if you're a conservative investor, and you're, you've got some Bitcoin, you've got some Ethereum, and you're not necessarily participating that much in the earn program, but you've got, let's say, other investors who have you know, purchased, let's say, 50 different cryptocurrencies. And these are very you know, considered riskier cryptocurrencies and something like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Ultimately, if that entity files for Chapter 11, you're going to get your pro rata share, meaning that even though you're a more conservative investor versus somebody else that has taken a lot more risk, you guys are going to get the same amount of value at the end of the day, which is not necessarily fair to some investors versus others. So you kind of you kind of open the door to all of that. So it's important to understand, to read the customer agreements. It's important to understand what the business model is. And what I always recommend is if you're going to invest for the long term, that you take the majority of your cryptocurrency and you use a cold storage device to upload it directly to the blockchain yourself. You control your own cryptocurrency. 
and then you want to get some interest, you want to stake part of that, uh, you can, but then you know you, you just do it with a smaller portion of your portfolio. Right. That certainly sounds like good advice. So Pablo, customers that invest in these firms with their crypto, are they protected in any way by the FDIC or anything of that nature? Yeah, another great question. You saw a lot of that come up here more recently. And you saw that the SEC came out and instructed a lot of these exchanges and firms that they can no longer say that. And here's a short answer. The short answer is that most of these companies that had said that previously, the, the implication was that if you transferred your cryptocurrency to someone like Celsius, that's FDIC insured. Well, that's not necessarily true. The only thing that's insured is if, let's say you've got a customer custody account where I'm transferring that specifically to Celsius for the sole purpose of them holding it for me as a custody account. And then what they're going to do is they're going to hold it with their underlying bank, let's say Metropolitan Bank, uh, because Met is a big one out there that holds a lot of these things. Well, but then the FDIC protection comes in through Met. So if Met goes out of business, there may be some FDIC provision provided by Met for that specific asset. But if Celsius goes out of business, again, that does not apply because, again, that goes back to who really owns the cryptocurrency. And in this particular case, the asset would be either belonging to the bankruptcy estate or if you can argue that your specific asset was strictly held for custody and it was never commingled and it's in a separate account like it is for some of these, then in that particular case, you may get your crypto or value back depending on the circumstances. My last question is a little bit of a prediction. Are we going to see a lot more distress among these firms or is this the peak, you think? Well, I think that for the mining companies right now, which are receiving a lot of pressure, especially here in Texas, you've got a lot of mining operations where the prices for electricity have gone up tremendously. That's driven because the majority of electricity here in Texas on the grid is generated by natural gas. And if you look at the prices of natural gas, they've more than doubled since August of last year. They went from around $2 per MCF all the way up to like nine or 10. Right now they're trading around six. So for the miners, you know, they've got costs that at least double or triple what they were this time last year or earlier this year. And simultaneously, as they're mining Bitcoin, for example, they're not getting, you know, 40 or 50 or 60,000 per coin. They're only getting 20. So that the, the miners are going to continue to have pressure until prices go back up there. And as far as generally speaking, I think as, as long as cryptocurrency prices stay about where they are right now. You might see a few more things shake out, but as long as we don't have a significant drop. But if we have another drop, if Bitcoin goes from you know, 20,000 to 12 or 10, you'll, you'll see another wave of bankruptcies and another wave of, of what we're seeing here recently. Uh, it just depends on what happens with the market. Pablo, thank you so much for being here. It was a really informative conversation. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Stephanie. I'm Stephanie Gleason, and you've been listening to Fresh Start. 